You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 264, Arnold Commits Treason. We last left General Benedict Arnold in episode 238 in the spring of 1780. Under pressure from Pennsylvania, the Continental Army put General Arnold before a court-martial. The court found him guilty of relatively minor offenses and ordered General Washington to issue a reprimand. General Washington began his reprimand by noting Arnold's great services to his country, but also that some of his conduct was, quote, reprehensible and that it was, quote, imprudent and improper. With Arnold's reputation in tatters, Congress also went after Arnold's finances. Arnold had received a great deal of money to conduct the Quebec campaign in 1776. When that money ran out, he used his personal funds to keep the campaign going. Arnold kept careful financial records of his expenses, but the British captured those records during his retreat from Quebec. Congress could have recognized the realities of war, but Arnold had enemies in Congress who were looking to screw him however they could. The Treasury Board concluded that not only did they not owe Arnold anything, but that Arnold owed Congress thousands of dollars for unaccounted expenses during the Quebec campaign and would not recognize any of the debts he had incurred personally on behalf of the Army. Arnold ended up having to sell the new home in Philadelphia that he had purchased for his new wife and moved to a smaller home owned by his father-in-law. During this same time, Arnold had permitted Silas Dean to stay with him. Dean, you will recall, was fighting with Congress over the French loans that he had acquired on behalf of Congress to help fund the war. Thanks to lies, Dean was fighting accusations that he had profited from these transactions. Like Arnold, Congress was unwilling to repay Dean for personal loans that he had made to the cause and for which he had expected to be reimbursed. All of this had deeply soured Arnold against Congress. It probably made him more open to ideas from his new loyalist wife and her friends and family about how these outrages would never happen under the king's rule and how Congress was simply not fit to rule over the American people. Arnold also seemed to conclude that he was one of the key reasons why the British had not yet won the war, and that Congress simply did not appreciate that fact. Arnold had begun his secret correspondence with British officials in early 1779. He had concluded that Congress would never compensate him for the many sacrifices that he had made for his country, but perhaps Britain would. After years of sacrifice for the cause, Arnold began asking himself one important question. No, wait, I have done everything I've been asked to do. I didn't understand it, but I've done it. And I haven't once asked what's in it for me. What are you saying, Ray? I'm saying, what's in it for me? If he did switch sides, he would certainly lose all of his existing property in America to confiscation. 
In his correspondence with the British, Arnold wanted reimbursement for all his lost property, repayment of the debts he had incurred on behalf of the army, and he also wanted a commission as a general in the British Regular Army, a rank that would provide him and his family with a pension after the war. The parties reached an agreement in principle at that time, but waited for the right time for Arnold to turn. The British wanted more from Arnold. They not only wanted him to come over to the other lines, they wanted him to turn over a valuable post. Arnold began providing valuable intelligence via secret couriers at this time. After that, the correspondence seemed to pause for a while. When the French army arrived in 1780, Arnold provided intelligence about that. For more than a year, British intelligence had a mole at the highest levels of the Continental Army. Arnold remained on the Continental side, waiting for the right time to make his move. Now, Arnold had originally requested reimbursement of £10,000 from the British. In the spring of 1780, General Philip Schuyler met with Arnold about giving him command of West Point. Washington had thought Arnold wanted a larger command one that would offer him an opportunity to redeem himself on the battlefield and restore his reputation. Arnold, however, had other plans. He claimed that his battlefield injuries rendered him unable to take to the field and specifically requested command of West Point. Arnold proposed to the British that in addition to the £10,000 in reimbursements, the British should give him another £20,000 if he turned over West Point. Now, the fortifications at West Point had grown increasingly important over the course of the war. The Continentals had designated the area of one of four choke points along the Hudson River where they could block British ships. A sharp turn in the river there made it a more difficult place for ships to pass. In 1778, the Americans began building permanent fortifications around the area to prevent any authorized river passage. These included the West Point chain across the river and a series of fortifications to protect the chain from any attack. The defenses there continued to grow, mostly under the supervision of Colonel Tadeusz Kosciuszko, the Polish engineer who had joined the Continental Army. Kosciuszko built a series of about 30 fortifications, all of which were designed to support one another in any attack. If the British attacked some of the fortifications, the others could fire on the attackers. The British would not likely have the numbers to attack all the fortifications at once. This, people on both sides believed, made West Point virtually impregnable. In 1779, the British moved up the Hudson, getting within 12 miles of West Point before withdrawing back to New York City. After that attack, Washington kept a larger garrison at West Point. It was far enough away from British lines in New York that they could not launch a surprise attack in a single day, but close enough that the Continentals could deploy forces south if the British did make any new foray up the Hudson River. So the British came to see West Point as the key to controlling the Lower Hudson. If they could do so, they would sit in between Washington's Continentals in northern New Jersey and the French Army in Newport, Rhode Island. Capturing West Point on the heels of the fall of Charleston and the American loss at Camden might well have driven American morale so low that it might lead to the end of the war. Washington was already having trouble recruiting soldiers for his army. Three major losses in 1780 certainly would not have helped that effort. 
of British attempts to take West Point by force had proven fraught with risk. The British commander, Henry Clinton, had attempted to launch an offensive out of New York City in the summer of 1780 after he returned from his victory at Charleston. But he found that the farther he tried to move his army into enemy territory, the greater the defense and the more difficult it was to maintain his supply lines. While the British could run ships up the Hudson River, putting together an invasion fleet that could disembark and attack well-defended entrenchments up a mountainside just seemed too risky. Now, on the other hand, if the British could get the commander of West Point to turn over the 3,000-man garrison there, the British could establish themselves behind the defenses and fend off any attack launched by the enemy against them. The key to all of this was getting Benedict Arnold to take command at West Point. Although both sides considered West Point to be important, Washington had never put one of his top generals in command there. The garrison at West Point was meant to deter a British advance, but Washington did not anticipate that West Point's commander would be leading men into battle. Washington had given command to Major General William Heath. Washington had found Heath's leadership lacking early in the war, but could not discharge him from the army without upsetting Heath's political allies in New England. In such cases, Washington tried to put such leaders in a position of prominence, but where they would be unlikely to have their military skills really put to the test. At times, General Heath left for other duties, including handling the British prisoners captured after Saratoga or for recruitment drives in New England. During these absences, Brigadier General Alexander McDougall took command. McDougall was also a patriot and politician-turned-military officer without any impressive military record that would entitle him to a more active post. After General Heath left for good in early 1780, the post command went to Major General Robert Howe, again another politically prominent general who had lost command in his case in the South because of his ineffectiveness. As late as June of 1780, Arnold was still in Philadelphia. Washington was trying to convince him to take a field command. As we know, though, Arnold wanted West Point. It was about this time that Arnold contacted General Niphausen about his request for £10,000, and he also demanded an immediate payment of £200 so that he could pay for his continued communications through a private trusted channel. At the time, General Clinton and Major Andre were still in Charleston. Niphausen sent Arnold the money along with the ring. He said that an agent would contact him wearing a matching ring as evidence that he was truly sent by British command. As part of his good faith, Arnold provided details about a planned invasion of Quebec to be led by the Marquis de Lafayette. In fact, Washington had circulated information about this proposed invasion in hopes of word reaching the British and getting them to remove forces from New York in order to support Quebec. Arnold, however, did not know that this was disinformation. Arnold also informed the British that he planned to leave Philadelphia to head home to Connecticut, and then after that he would meet with Washington in Morristown in early July. On his way to Connecticut, Arnold stopped in West Point to survey the defenses. He wrote that many of the garrison were being deployed elsewhere and gave detailed information about the defenses and their weaknesses. He even advised where the enemy could land 
to begin an effective land assault on the fortifications. He sent this coded assessment to the British in New York. Arnold then continued on to Hartford, Connecticut. There, he tried to sell his house and collect on some debts, but had little luck with either. Part of the problem was that he did not want to take continental dollars. He wanted notes drawn on European banks. We don't have any record of what Arnold discussed with Washington when they met at Morristown in early July, but we do know that Washington still hoped to convince Arnold to take command of the entire left wing of his army. At this point, Washington was still hoping to cooperate with the French in a joint invasion of Manhattan, and he wanted Arnold to be a key field commander in that effort. West Point would be well back behind the lines of any offensive. Washington said in a letter that the fort could be left in, quote, the care of invalids and a small garrison of militia during this time. Arnold, however, left his meeting with Washington in early July with a very different view. A few days after the meeting, Arnold sent a coded message to his handlers in New York, letting them know that he would soon be in command of West Point and that he was ready to hand it over to the British for £20,000. He also asked for a down payment of £1,000 ahead of time. General Clinton received word of the offer, but allowed his chief of intelligence, Major John Andre, to handle the correspondence. Andre responded that Arnold would receive a payment of £20,000 for his role in capturing West Point and its garrison, but nothing further for reimbursement of his losses. Clinton also authorized a down payment of £500, half of what Arnold requested. On August 1st, Washington met with Arnold at King's Ferry near New York. Washington encouraged Arnold once again to take a field command and would make him second in command of the Continental Army, behind only Washington himself. When Washington gave Arnold the news, he assumed Arnold would be delighted. He even had already written general orders to be released later that day, making public Arnold's new command. Washington recalled later, though, that when he informed Arnold that the general seemed disappointed. Other witnesses recalled that Arnold's face went red and that he appeared angry, but that he said nothing. Later that day, at headquarters, Arnold told Washington that he was in no condition for a field command and insisted on taking command of West Point. Two days later, Washington issued peremptory orders to Arnold having him take command of West Point and the other Hudson River forts. Arnold finally took command of West Point in August of 1780. One of his first acts was to send an aide to Philadelphia to collect his wife Peggy and their infant son. In mid-August, Less than two weeks after taking command of West Point, Arnold received a coded letter from Andre informing him of Clinton's counteroffer, the flat £20,000 for the capture of West Point. Arnold did not respond immediately to Clinton or Andre. Arnold did write General Washington, informing him that the fort's defenses were a mess. Even so, everything he did seemed to weaken the defenses even further. He raised no objection when Washington requested four of the artillery companies under his command for field duty. Arnold sent hundreds of soldiers far from the fort, some on woodcutting duty or to other outposts. Within a few weeks, the garrison at West Point had fallen to four or five hundred men. Arnold also removed much of the food stores from the fort, 
putting them in his personal storeroom at the mansion that he used for a residence, and this was several miles away from the fort. This would prevent the garrison from having enough food to withstand a siege of any length. It also became quickly apparent that Arnold was selling some of his food on the black market. Arnold attempted to respond to Andre, but the courier he chose to deliver his coded message got suspicious and turned it over to Continental General Samuel Parsons. Since Parsons could not decode its meaning, he simply put the letter in a drawer. A few days later, Arnold found another courier who got through a message to Andre calling for a meeting near an American outpost. Arnold would either meet with Andre or an agent of his choosing to go over the final details of the plan. Andre worked out a plan to meet with Arnold where the two officers could talk privately without giving away Arnold's plans to the Americans. Arnold was living at a mansion that was owned by a loyalist named Beverly Robinson. Early in the war, Robinson had fled to British-controlled New York City, but had returned once under a flag of truce to handle some of his personal property. By this time, Robinson was a colonel in the provincial militia of Loyalists. Colonel Robinson, accompanied by Major Andre, would meet with General Arnold at an outpost near Dobbs Ferry under the pretext of a discussion of the disposition of some of his remaining personal property at the house. This would give Arnold and Andre time to confer privately. On September 11th, Andre and Robinson boarded the British ship Vulture and sailed up the Hudson to Dobbs Ferry. Arnold sailed down from West Point to meet them. Although the Americans controlled the land in this area, British patrol boats regularly sailed its waters. As Arnold approached the ferry, a British patrol boat fired on his bateau. Arnold had to take cover near an American blockhouse and could not make the intended meeting. When Arnold returned to West Point, he said he had been on an inspection tour when he was attacked, and he ordered more artillery to Dobbs Ferry to chase off the British patrol boats. As Arnold and Andre tried to arrange another meeting, Peggy and Nettie finally arrived at West Point. Around this same time, Arnold learned that he would have another visitor. General Washington wrote to inform him that he was on his way traveling north to meet with the French General Rochambeau at Hartford, Connecticut. He requested an armed escort for his secret journey. Washington also wanted a report on the West Point defenses. Arnold put together the report for Washington and made a second copy for Major Andre. He also tried to get a courier to take the message to New York that General Washington would be crossing the Hudson on September 18th, hoping the British might arrange a raid to capture him and his other top officers. As Arnold prepared to lead the honor guard that would accompany General Washington across the Hudson, he received another letter from Colonel Robinson indicating that Andre wanted to try to meet once again. Arnold confided in his artillery colonel, John Lamb, that he intended to meet with Robinson. Lamb counseled against the meeting with a notorious loyalist and suggested he speak with Washington about the propriety of such a meeting when the men met at Peekskill. Arnold did have dinner with Washington at Peekskill, along with Lafayette, Knox, Hamilton, and others. As the officers dined, the British warship Vulture approached. The ship continued to sail by, unaware of the valuable group of diners nearby. 
Arnold's letter to the British informing them about Washington's presence had arrived too late. Arnold, at his meeting with Washington, did bring up the question of meeting with Colonel Beverly, and Washington warned against it. The Loyalist could send a letter to New York Governor George Clinton if he had anything to discuss. Washington was concerned more about the security of West Point. One of his spies in New York had warned that an American general was working in league with the British. Whoever that general might be, Washington was more concerned that Arnold worked to improve the West Point defenses to deter any attack. Given Washington's refusal to let him meet, Arnold could not meet publicly with Robinson and Andre without raising suspicion. Arnold could, however, meet with Andre alone since no one really knew who he was. Arnold sent word to Andre that Washington, Lafayette, and others would be dining with him at his home near West Point on September 24th. It would be the perfect time for the British to attack. They might capture not only West Point, but the leader of the Continental Army as well. Even with all this information, Clinton and Andre still thought a personal meeting with Arnold was critical to seal the deal. They arranged for one final attempt at this meeting. And we will get to that meeting next time in an episode that may not go very well for Major Andre. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters Kurt Avard and Knox Press. Check out knoxpress.com to see their latest releases on a wide variety of military history books. Thanks also to Brian Gansert, Brian Bick, and Robert Wong for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I also want to thank Eric Wigginton for sending me a copy of the book The Forgotten Victory by Thomas Fleming. I had recommended that book a while back and mentioned that I had had trouble finding a physical copy of it. A few weeks ago, I scheduled a Zoom event with the American Revolution Roundtable. We were supposed to have a speaker give us a presentation, but at the last minute the speaker got sick and did not attend. Instead, we ended up having a great conversation amongst ourselves about a great deal of things related to both the Revolution and the podcast. I have another speaker scheduled for February, but I'm thinking I will extend that meeting so that we could actually have another chat about a half hour before the speaker gets started. I think it's a great way for us to interact and speak with each other. 
So if you're interested in attending that meeting, please make sure you're on my mailing list with MailChimp. That way you will receive detailed information about all upcoming events. And speaking of upcoming events, the other big live event that I plan to be attending this spring is History Camp Valley Forge in May. History Camp covers more than the revolution, of course. Uh, It's all about all aspects of history, but I suspect there will be a big focus on the Revolutionary War era at this event. If you've never been to a history camp before, it's a great place to get together and discuss history with other enthusiasts. There will be dozens of presentations all day Saturday. There's also extra events and tours on Friday and Sunday. Go to historycamp.org for more details. I will be one of the presenters at History Camp, although my topic is not on the American Revolution. I'm going to be discussing the Philadelphia Bible Riots of 1844. I find this a really fascinating event, which I think still has some relevance for us today. Anyway, hope to see you at History Camp Valley Forge on May 20th. This week we looked at Benedict Arnold's attempts to set himself up with a position so that he could inflict as much damage when he made his move to the British side. Much of his efforts seem very transactional. The British had offered him much more cash if he could help them take West Point than they would give him simply to come over and switch uniforms. One can make the case that Arnold was literally selling out his fellow officers and men, condemning them to British prison ships where most of them would die horrible lingering deaths from starvation and disease, all for him making a few extra bucks. Arnold, as we saw, also tried to provide intelligence that would allow the British to capture General Washington and some of the other top commanders. Arnold was using the trust that everyone in the Continental Army and all of America had put in him to bring about their destruction, all for his own personal enrichment. I think that assessment is fair. But I also imagine Arnold could rationalize this if he really had decided the war would never be successful for the Americans. Doing what he planned to do would bring a faster end to the war and was really best for everyone concerned. Now, I'm in no way trying to justify what Arnold did, but rather trying to imagine what was going on in his own head as he tried to rationalize this act of betrayal. I've sometimes heard people argue that everyone in the Continental Army was a traitor and that Arnold just did it twice, but I think there really is a fundamental difference when you openly oppose a sovereign and join with others to overthrow an established order for the greater good, which is what all of the rebels were doing at this time, versus using deception and lies to turn on your own comrades, primarily to enrich yourself or for your own personal benefit. Now, both could arguably be treason, but I see a real fundamental difference between the two. If you want to get inside the head of Benedict Arnold, you'll want to get a copy of today's book recommendation. It's called A Hero and a Spy, The Revolutionary War Correspondence of Benedict Arnold by Russell Lee. As you might guess from the title, this is a close look at Arnold's letters and other writings during the time of the Revolutionary War. Now, obviously, there were a great many things that Arnold could not commit to writing, and much of what he did write had some spin on it. But if you want to understand the man, you'll want to look at his writing, and A Hero and a Spy is a great source for this. The book was originally published, I think, in 2006, although the 2008 paperback seems to be the only edition that is available. At over 600 pages, 
it is as thorough a look as you can get at Arnold's contemporary writings. If you'd like to get a better understanding about the importance of West Point, you'll want to check out my online recommendation. It's a public domain book called The History of West Point and Its Military Importance During the American Revolution. This book was actually published during the Civil War. It's a 400-page look at the history of West Point and why it was seen as so important by both sides by 1780. The author of the book, Edward Carlyle Boynton, was a West Point graduate, and he even worked at West Point for a time after serving in the Mexican War. He was a professor, though, at the University of Mississippi in the South when the Civil War began. At that time, he returned north, reactivated his position as a captain in the Union Army, and returned to service during the war. His service, however, resulted in him returning to a post at West Point, and that's when he wrote this book. So, it's a really good book on West Point and its history, written by somebody who knows an awful lot about it. Again, it's called The History of West Point and Its Military Importance During the American Revolution. As always, you can find a link to it on my blog or website. My question this week asks, who were the founding fathers and why are they important today? Uh, I struggled with this term, founding fathers, because it is a vague one and there really is no agreed definition. The term really didn't come into usage until the early 20th century, when Senator and later President Warren Harding used the term in a number of his public speeches. Now, some people limit the Founding Fathers to the key leadership who were most instrumental in establishing the Constitution and forming the federal government. We're talking here about men like maybe Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Franklin, Madison, Hamilton, maybe Jay. Other definitions will include everyone who attended the Constitutional Convention and signed the Constitution. There are, of course, even broader definitions that include signers of the Declaration or even all members of the Continental Congress. Some even include top state and military leaders who made the founding of America possible. And some might make it even broader, including the tens of thousands of people who fought in the War for Independence. In general, though, it is a reference to the people who played a key role in creating the United States. They're important for us today was their establishment of a successful democratic republic that allows us a government that is responsive to the people who live under it. Without their efforts, the U.S. would have developed very differently. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.